Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Our guest on today's show is Will Butler-Adams, the CEO of Brompton Bikes, and we recorded this episode at Brompton's factory in West London. As soon as we arrived, Will took us out on some of the company's brand new electric bikes, which are pretty special, and we whizzed around an industrial estate for about 20 minutes at some pretty impressive speeds, which is as good a way as any, I think, to start a podcast. Then after that, Will took us through what looked like a broom cupboard door into this sort of TARDIS-like factory floor, which was alive with welders and braziers and sparks and the sound of clanging metal and things. And then we sat down to talk about a very British brand story and Will's own journey. And we touched on his two trips to the Amazon, one of which very nearly killed him, his visions for a bike-friendly London, and why what we do in the five to nine is what really defines us. Enjoy. But before we start this episode, I'd love to tell you very briefly about The Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get four issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door across the year, full of all those invaluable insights from the world of entrepreneurship, style and culture that you'd hope for. As well as, of course, some exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels, not to mention invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, if you're a podcast listener, which you obviously are, you now get 20% off your annual Clubhouse membership, meaning you get the full Gentleman's Journal experience in full colour for just £56 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. To get that, just enter the code POD20, that's P-O-D-2-0, at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Will, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. Well, we're, of course, joining you. We're in the Brompton factory, and there is a distant clang of metal and reassuring smells coming from the factory floor, which is right next to us. Yeah. Um, You're a very techie person. Do you ever get involved and get your hands dirty down on the floor? That sounds Um, (laughs) a bit odd, but carry on. Sounds like a hell of a fun (laughs) afternoon on a Wednesday. Um, So when when we started... There were 25 or 26 of us. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it was all hands-on. Um, I remember when I had a lovely member of staff who every two weeks when he got paid used to disappear for four days um, and then appear on the fifth day looking slightly groggy. Okay. And, uh, but he was very, very good at his job. And I said to him, you know, this can't continue. You can't disappear for four days every time you get paid every two weeks because we're running a company and it can't happen. But he thought he was the only person who could do the job. And so he didn't think we could fire him. And I really kept saying to him, you know, this is going to come to you losing your job. He never believed it because he'd been with us quite a long time and it hadn't happened. This is early doors when I joined. So eventually I, I had to let him go because it didn't matter what I did. He didn't understand what that meant. What was he doing? He was going off and he partying. Was, he was going off and partying. Okay. And um, anyway, so then, of course, I had to run the flipping machine. So I ran the machine for like two and a half months. Um, while we found somebody, oh, it wasn't full on two and a half months, it was full on for probably about four weeks and then it was on and off for um, another month and a half. So, you know, I'm not bad at most things. I'm completely and utterly rubbish at brazing because you really need to be skillful to do that. But assembly, some of the other parts, I, I've done them all at okay. some point or other. So in a, in a post-apocalyptic scenario, if oh. the only way to escape the zombies was to ride a Brompton of your own making... Easy. It would you get could, me. It would get me out of trouble. It. Not maybe round the world, but it would get me out of trouble. Okay, good. That's encouraging. I'll come here then. Yeah, yeah. When the apocalypse finally happens. So Bromptons are interesting, aren't they? Because there are lots of folding bikes, really. Um, 
I think they were even ones before Brompton. Mm. Um, and there are ones that are cheaper, there are ones that are different, there are ones that are fairly similar. But yet Brompton is the name, a bit like Hoover and vacuum cleaners, that people have in their head. Why is that? Well, you say they have it in their head. We have it in our head because we're probably quite London-centric. Yeah. But there are, you know, we live in a little blue dot um, with lots of people living in lots of places and most people haven't got a clue who we are. The reason why in a few places, well, London, Brussels, Barcelona, a little bit Manhattan, we've sort of got traction is because it works. That's it. I mean, the thing flipping well works. And it doesn't just work like, you know, when you're all excited for the first month or two after you bought it. Mm. It works after three years, after six years, after nine years. These things are rock solid. And you're not buying a toy. This is a tool. And it is not something that is to be taken lightly because we were riding through a city, there's traffic, you don't want this thing breaking, you don't want to hurt yourself. So why people trust it is because it has built a reputation of trust. It's kind of become a cultural touch point as well. I think about um, Hugh Bonville's character in W1A. There's a great running joke that all involves a Brompton, which yes. is incredible for advertising for you, yes. even if it's slightly poking fun at the oh kind God, of Brompton Oh God, we don't man. mind that. And we had no idea when that came out and, until it appeared on telly. So, okay, good. Um, and they, they are Bromptons they're using, aren't they? Yeah, they are Bromptons. Yeah, fine. And then the funny bit was, and in series, whenever it was, they were then talking about the carbon Brompton. And everyone rang us up and said, well, where are you with the carbon Brompton? Of course, we don't make a carbon Brompton. No. <laughs> it was just brilliant. It had gone totally beyond okay, us. Wow. Amazing. So who is the Brompton man? Then? Is he a kind of TV exec who's, um, who wants to communicate? We don't have a Brompton man. We don't have a Brompton... Woman. woman, yeah. We have never been interested in compartmentalizing who our customer is. The bottom line is the thing's useful. It makes life better. It makes you feel better in yourself. It makes you feel better in your head. It makes you feel better physically. So our target is geography. It's not a person. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe not in Asia, because we're luxury in Asia. But in, in the Western world, even though we're not cheap, we're affordable. Everybody, if they have a need for it, can afford it. Because we see plenty of people buying cars and they're way more expensive than our bike. And I would argue that for a lot of people who live in towns or cities, our bike, you'd get more use out of it. Just because it's easier to use. Well, because it's so handy. Because you can stick it in the car and ditch the car and then pedal in for the last you know, two or three miles. I do that in the summer coming to work you can chuck it on the train you can you know use it and then when you can't be bothered you can jump on the tube or jump in an uber or jump in a cab or meet some friends and it's just awesome and what we need if we're gonna be a bit healthier is we just need something that's just handy and useful not extreme requiring tremendous amounts of thought Mm. you know you just even it's there you use it if it's convenient you use it and if it isn't who cares right that's what it does brilliantly Okay, so let's go back to the start and, and your career. You weren't you weren't always in bikes, were you? No. So I um, did engineering at Newcastle, principally because my parents were quite keen on me to become an accountant. Right. <laughs> I didn't know what engineering was. Had no idea, but I definitely knew what accounting was, and it sounded incredibly dull to me. So it wasn't something I was keen to do. So when they were telling me, of course, that's what I should be doing, I was like, well, I'm not doing that. Mm. And um, somebody in the careers service had told me engineering opened more doors than it closed. So I grabbed onto that and said, I'm becoming an engineer, even though I didn't really know what it was. But, you know, and we had a little bit of a 
disagreement, but uh, luckily in those days, um, university was free, so I just waltzed off to do my own thing. Okay. Were you always kind of interested in how things work? Were you taking things apart and putting them... No, I wasn't a sort of Meccano genius. Um, I found maths reasonably natural. I did maths, physics, and chemistry. Well, that's why I didn't really know what engineering was. There was no engineering um, GCSE when I was going through education. I thought I was going to be a game warden when I was growing up. Wow. So it really was a question of doing something that I thought would give me more options than less. Then I started getting into the degree, met some supremely cool people at uni who, without them, I would have completely failed. And we were a great team. And it I, I could do it. I was a miracle because I wasn't academic. I was failed, failed, failed. I was in LMF at school and there was A, B, C, D, E, F and F was for the thick people mm -hmm. so the chips started growing on my shoulder so um, what's yeah. LMF? well that was just class the classes okay. were given funny names but right. the lowest class was F okay do and they still do that at schools do you think? Grade well yeah of course everyone do. knows who's in the top class and everyone knows who's yeah. in the bottom class and I was in the bottom class and you know that 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 yeah, pissed me off and uh, so when I got somewhere and did alright you know, I was really, I couldn't believe myself. So I then got quite excited about actually being able to be any good at anything. Academic, that is. Yeah. So um, I worked incredibly hard and I had, I got a, a scholarship from, I went to school at rugby. So I really had a, uh, you know, silver spoon in my mouth from the moment I popped out. Um, and I went to school at rugby and I, I won an award scholarship to take a year off. And I spent time... Uh, in the north of Argentina, basically doing a pretty ropey job. Amazing, but ropey. And then I picked lemons in Peru, so I ran out of money when I got to Peru. And that was great because, you know, these lemon trees have big spikes on them, and I, and I was having to crawl underneath them, and I'm quite tall. And I was determined not to do manual labor. So suddenly the university, I'd chosen this thing, I was hit the ground running, worked hard, and then got a, I got a first. Unbelievable. Wow. Um, and I did a master's and it was all bloody awesome spent a year in Spain and yeah, yeah. so that's where it started okay fine and then you came to be involved in Brompton I'm told by a kind of a quirk of happenstance you met someone on a coach is that true? true so I'd done five nearly six years in Middlesbrough in the borough okay. um, bloody awesome uh, big I went to University of Durham and did I'm you? incredibly fond of that part of the world the borough the and borough good the, nights out in Middlesbrough uh, yeah. cheap nights out as well right. compared to here <laughs> yeah I mean, it was pretty awesome, but it's definitely an interesting place. Yes. And uh, so I'd done my six years, and then I thought I was going to go to France and do an MBA, and I was studying for that. And, you know, people talk about opportunity, luck, and all these things. I I'm definitely not a luck, fate person. I'm very much... Um, there is luck in it, of course, but... You've got to, the opportunities float by and you either sort of see them and just sort of go, oh, or you grab the buggers. And many of them come to nothing. But that was a classic case where I was sitting on this bus and I sat next door to this guy and we got chatting and he was great friends of Andrew, the inventor. Mm. And out of politeness, I went to go and look around and I was slightly conscious that my sort of CV at the time was a bit boring because I'd just really done uni and then working uh, for, for ICI 
So I thought maybe, and all the cool people living in London, maybe in a couple of years with this mad, eccentric, slightly weird thing. And I went around the factory and was convinced I could add value. I mean, I could see the thing was being run inefficiently from my perspective. So I thought I'd pile in, you know, a couple of years, then go on to France and off we go on this sort of classic career. And, and that was 17 years ago, so it didn't quite work out. Okay, good. <laughs> And what's the potted history of the brand? Because you mentioned there the, the slight chaos when you came in. And I think people are probably aware of the inventor behind Brompton. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about the story? So Andrew is exceptional. His conceptual design is breathtaking. I mean, breathtaking. His ability to visualize things in 3D. He's like a mega computer in his brain. And his ability to design with, with elegance, it, it, the whole thing, he's, he's an exceptional individual. Mm-hmm. Um, with that exceptionalness comes some other weaknesses. His, his sort of interpersonal skills are pretty ropey. Um, he's absolutely obsessed with detail and cannot lift his head, you know, um, up. But, and he's determined because he came up with the idea, he'd already had one business fail that his friends had put money in, so the friends sort of route had all gone. Um, he thought somebody else would make it, Rally and others. Uh, they slightly politely turned him down and said, not on your Nelly. He wasn't going to give up. His friends at this day were saying, you probably want to give up. Go and do a nine to five. He didn't. He spent um, five years trying to find someone to make it, then decided wow. to do it himself. Then he spent two years making it with one other guy called Paddy in a okay. railway arch. And people so bought this them. Is seven years from... First thinking, because the, the, the folding bike existed. So, yes, and he was inspired by a bike called the Bickerton, which is a British brand. Right. Which bag is of a, Bickerton. Bag of Bickerton. I'm impressed. I have to say, before I started researching this podcast, I didn't know that, but I thought it was oh, such well, a catchy I'm so line. impressed. Bag of Bickerton. Great it's line. It's a great line. Bag of Brompton, just steal yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, no, well, we yeah. And the Bag of Bickerton <laughs> is a great product. Um, the only problem is that it rides like a blancmange, but the concept was awesome. And so Andrew was trying to, actually his dad pushed him towards Bickerton and he, because Andrew's a genius, because that's what geniuses know they are, um, he decided that what he'd seen in Bickerton was rubbish and he could do a better job. So really the Bickerton inspired the Brompton. Okay. And, um, but no one else saw it. And five years went by before he made his own. He did them for two years, nearly 500, 450. We, we, I've been collecting lots of them. And um, he sold them all and they weren't cheap. But he sold them, but then he realised after two years, because he was never and is never that obsessed with the sort of fiscal side, he'd made no money. Mm. So he needed a bit of money to put that into tooling, take a bit of manufacturing cost out, and hey-ho, off we go. So he thought he'd stop for six months, get his 40 grand, 40 grand in 1982, not a huge amount of money. And of course, no one would invest in him. Nobody would invest in him. It took six years, not six months, of ridicule, knockbacks, no presentations, no. And he, he, he did other odd jobs and a bit of contract work to keep himself going. So this is a 13-year journey and he's still 13 not... 13-year... And he hasn't got off the, the ground outside, yet. he still looks like... A complete... Yeah. Forget it. Okay. And uh, finally, it was one of the, the customers that had bought six of the bikes said, look, I, I want to buy more. This is ridiculous. My friends that I gave the bikes to, they want to buy more. I'm going to have to help you. A chap called Julian Verica, legend, mm. who was the founder of Name Audio. If you're into your audio, we are involved in a bit of audio <laughs> at the moment um, name is bad, bad at the top and um, Martin's nodding over there yeah, yeah, yeah. name is the, the good absolute one, flipping creme de la creme and Julian was the entrepreneur 
Andrew is a genius, mm -hmm. but Julian was the entrepreneur. He came in, he got the 40 grand, and then they started getting going. And then sadly, tragically, Julian then had cancer and tragically died in 98. And at that point, Tim, Andrew's dear friend, Andrew asked him if he'd come in and help him. That was in 98, and I met Tim on the bus in 2001, joined in 2002. And at that time, we were about 26 people okay. doing uh, about 2 million turnover. Mm. And it's been a bloody laugh. Right. What was the conversation on the bus? Do you, do you like the conversation yes, was do. No, the conversation was, what do you do? And Tim said, um, I'm in uh, energy funds, mm -hmm. which point I'm like, oh, well, we're not going to have much to talk about. <laughs> and, uh, he, and then he said, what do you do? And I, I said, well, I'm an engineer. Oh my God, engineer. Oh, oh, well, I'm also involved in this company. They make bikes. No, 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 no. Andrew, okay. and it's building bike. Have you heard of it? No, no, no. Oh, we're looking for somebody just like you. You ought to come meet him. Wow. And I could have been a chemical engineer. You know, <laughs> I mean, could have been completely irrelevant. Fortunately, I'm a mechanical engineer. But um, so that's how it started. Right. Okay. And then you've kind of climbed up the ladder, I suppose. And now you're so, the CEO. Yes, How's that happened? So... You know, the company was pretty small. I mean, I had a, I was running a team that was bigger than the company mm. beforehand. So I had 35 people working for me when I was in Middlesbrough, which I left when I was 28, and when I joined Brompton. And this company had 25, 26 staff. Andrew signed every check. We had an MS-DOS system. I had no budgetary control. There were no meetings. There was no strategy. There were no monthly management accounts. There was no project planning. I mean, it was unreal from the world I'd come from. Mm -hmm. So, but there was so much opportunity, they couldn't make enough bikes. So I just got stuck in, I just got stuck in. They had a stock turn of one and started just getting rid of tons of pallets of stuff because Andrew's a bit of a kleptomaniac and, 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 and getting skips and getting shot of it and making more space, recruiting people, setting clear monthly targets and all that stuff. and. You know, it's so easy, you know, to get the basics right, place for everything, everything in place, clear communication. Um, so I got heavily involved in the manufacturing, started to help the production go up, recruited people who were much mm -hmm. better than me. And then in 2006, I joined in 2002, I became a director. At that point, I was getting heavily involved in running the operations. Um, I mean, it was still pretty tiddly and small. And... At that stage, what I had discovered is I bloody love this bike. I mean, I lived in London and I had such a blast whizzing around London on the bike. Everyone laughed at me. My friends laughed at me. I'm six foot four. I look like a, a you know, a sort of uh, weird thing with long gangly legs, you know, bouncing up and down this bike with small wheels. But it was so cool because it worked. And then I met customers for whom it's changed their life. And it had changed my life. I would never thought urban living was my thing and I had such fun. So I got quite addicted not just to the opportunity of an engineering company that could be made more efficient, but this product that Andrew designed was super cool. And so increasingly it got under my skin and I felt we could do amazing things with this bike. And then at that point I knew I wanted, there was an opportunity for me to take over. 2006, took two years of work, bit of argy-bargy and wheeler dealing and, you know, persuading Andrew to give up his baby, quite a big tall right. order and, and something that you know it, depending on which day of the week you speak to him he would say he would, it was the right decision and on other days he's very frustrated and he would say it was a disaster um, so in 2008 I did a sort of management buyout 
Mm. Um, so that was 11 years ago now. And um, my, you know, I had to raise money to buy out Andrew because he had a controlling stake. So he went from 60% down to around 20. And so like dad put money in, friends from uni put money in. I mean, anyone I met who I thought was sufficiently um, gullible, um, <laughs> you know, could put money in. So I begged, steal, borrowed. I borrowed every penny I could and put as much money as I could. I overvalued things and, you know, I, we got there, but just. So we're, you know, we're owned by Andrew and his friends, me and my friends. And actually now about 20% of the company is owned by our staff, which is quite cool. So we had quite a big okay. staff ownership plan. That sounds like quite a... Um, a trying period there's a lot of emotions some conflict yes I mean the truth is trying is all relative when you're in the middle of it you're just on a mission you're Mm -hmm. not having some trying period you're just piling in you know I was so ambitious and driven and it was you know it was emotional I presume for Andrew but we all agreed we were going to do it there was no sort of twisting anyone's hand so it wasn't a kind of a slightly hostile oh there was nothing hostile about it because Andrew owned a controlling stake yeah he's not you know if he doesn't like it yeah Andrew he doesn't his overhead is next to nil he still rents the flat that he rented when he left Cambridge okay he doesn't have a family so he this is nothing to do with fiscal it's all about emotional emotion but having let go you are always going to have that you know, you're going to look over your shoulder and think, "Oh my God, what are they doing now?" And right, you know, yeah, you know. So it, it, it's it's never easy. Um, but you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Andrews. But one of the reason he and I succeeded is because we didn't agree on a lot of things. If you go into a company, everyone agrees. That's worrying because you're all believing your own bullshit, and that's not good. You've got to be challenged the whole time. And mm. and Andrew is pretty good, pretty right. good at that. Still is. Okay. And how how often does he come down here? So he moved on to the board um, and he did that until 2015. But what was happening, because Andrew is a detail man, the business was growing so fast in so many different directions and he could see it because he was on the board. He was trying to understand the detail of every single part of the business. Mm. But it was happening so fast, it was causing him to get stressed because he couldn't... You can't do that. Oh my God, what... You know, I haven't understood yeah. what, 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 and, and, and that's not quite right. Oh my God, and you're doing this. Oh my God, you know, and and so he wasn't enjoying himself. Right. And he said, Andrew, you know, the whole point is to have fun. We're only here for a short period of time, and this is not making you happy. Can the board get somebody in who you trust to sit on the board on your behalf? But let's get you in to do the bit you really like, which is the technical bit. So he comes in every couple of months. And we spend an afternoon going through technical engineering, production engineering, design. Mm. And that's where he's, he's at his best and he's in his zone and he loves it. And he's also got this incredible brain. So, you know, we shuffle in our designers who thought they were amazing at Dyson and he'll just sort of, you know, pull limbs off and then yeah. <laughs> throw them out of the door. <laughs> London's not a very um, cycle friendly city, is it? I disagree. Is it? Yes. Okay. Well, you just need to use your eyes because London isn't cycling friendly if you cycle where you go on the bus or in the car. And that's what most people think. They right. think, well, I'm not going down the Cromwell Road, but that's where you drive. But you don't cycle where you drive. But the trouble is, if you start from a position of cab, bus, car, mm. 
when you superimpose the bicycle, you think, oh my God, Where does it go? no way, I'm not going there. But London is full of canals, back streets, one-way streets, which the bike can still go through. It's a, it's a wash with wonderful architecture, hidden streets, little alleyways that the average liver has no idea about. And once you unlock those, and of course the infrastructure, the, the, the cycle lanes is getting better. So whenever I can get onto the um, embankment cycle lane, I mean, that's awesome. It takes you right out to Canary Wharf. I mean, I can get from um, House of Parliament to Canary Wharf in just over 20 minutes. Mm. Glorious. As I said, I get out just before Notting Hill at Holland Park. From Holland Park, I've got a teeny weeny bit of road. Then it's segregated cycleway all the way to Canary Wharf or all the way. I mean, I just know London like the back of my hand. Fine. But, but, but maybe I mean culturally it's not good. If you think about a place like Amsterdam, for example. Yes, but, but it's all relative. Because in 1970, Amsterdam had 6% cycling. Mm-hmm. We currently have about 4 So Amsterdam was very like London in the 1970s and, and, and I, I was not really mentally around in the 70s because I was born in 74 but for, for those that remember the 70s we had a three day week we didn't have power mm. and that scared the Netherlands so they had a cross party agreement to wean the country off oil so therefore they consciously decided wow. to invest in cycling to, to protect themselves against the hazards of, of dealing with the Middle East and the oil crisis that was a 30 year plan and it's delivered. And the cycling has gone from 6% to about 30%. But, it, you know, it's entirely doable. And we are going through a similar journey at the moment. The cycling infrastructure is, is phenomenal compared to where it was. It's still nowhere near good mm. enough, but it's coming. So I think it's all, it's all possible, but okay. it's not like a tech company. It's not going to happen in the next two years. It's no. going to happen over the next 20 years. But we're on a trajectory, and it's not some fad. This thing is here to stay. Yeah. Is it structural? I mean, if you think about the roads or somewhere like Copenhagen, they have a road, then a curb, then a bike lane, then a curb, then pedestrians. Correct. And that's what is you that need. possible to do here? I mean, are yeah. our buildings too close together? No, no, no. Well, that's why Copenhagen isn't a particularly good example because there's so much space. But Amsterdam's a brilliant example because mm. it's an ancient city with no space. Right. Yeah. So you know, and it's about removing cars. We have over ten thousand acres in yeah. London, which is used for a square box called an automobile hmm. 10,000 acres most of those automobiles square boxes are doing nothing they're just sitting there rusting in a place where we have very little space in a place where children can't be on the street because we've given 10,000 acres yeah. to a square box because some lobbyist years ago came up with a brilliant idea that our city should be full of them. No, cities should be full of children, human beings, not square boxes. Right. People who live in the city should be using its space, not the square box. The square box is brilliant for driving down the motorway and going to the Lake District, for example. But inside a city with a 10-mile radius? Nuts. And that's going to change. Okay. And it's not good for the air, and it's not good for the physical or mental health. So, you know, that whole... There is a huge transformation going on globally that we're realizing that what we spent 50 years creating Mm. isn't so clever. I mean, the idea, you know, we saw those photographs of people fagging in Mm. the 30s and they said mental cigarettes, you know, good for your health and all this amazing stuff. (laughs) When our grandchildren look at pictures of Oxford Street, 
Come to Oxford Street to do your shopping. Bring your family. And there's a baby being pushed along in a pram where the baby's head is at the exact height of an exhaust pipe from a diesel bus. And I was going, oh, lovely, lovely. Come shopping. You're going to go, that is completely nuts. Wow. <laughs> and yet it still goes on, but it's yeah. changing. Okay. I love those bikes in Amsterdam, the big Dutch bikes. Yeah. It just feels like a kind of a toy town when you're there. I know usually when I'm there, it's, you know, for recreation. And I'm, I mean, sorry, I mean, I mean, in the broadest sense of the word. But, 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 it's, but Dutch people seem so much happier. Do you because think they the, are. The, because, because of bikes? Is it yes. just because of bikes? Well, it's not just bike. Because if you have cycling, you have walking, you mm. have children walking. I mean, you know, it's not like a cycle isn't a risk, mm-hmm. but it's a much, much, much lower risk than a car. You could imagine parents saying to their children, go to the shops when they're walking down a road that only has cyclists in it. Or if it has cars, there are so many cyclists and pedestrians, the cars are only going literally at 10 miles an hour. You just can't do that. All this ownership of space. This is my space. This is for the car. The yeah. rest of you, fuck off. Right. You know, and it's like all this ownership. If you go to Barcelona, where they have the hexagonal design, yeah. it's fantastic. They've, they've now, if you imagine the blocks are hexagonals, but then, then there are like eight hexagonal blocks that make a hexagonal, hexagonal equivalent of square. And they've made all the interdispersing roads, no pavements, totally pedestrianised, totally cycling, and mm. cars can go. But because there are children everywhere, bicycles everywhere, Everything slows down. Cars can get there, but they wheedle their way through. Right. And it's great. It's okay. for the community. The land, the space is for living, not shoved onto the curb. Yeah. You know, and that's got to change. Do you speak to the powers that be about this? Have you spoken to politicians? Yes, but we are in 47 countries around the world. We are in really in cities in those countries. So... We have to be careful. We're not a lobbying group. Yeah. We're, what we're really good at is designing cool products. Of course, we'll support. We had a hustings here a few nights ago with, with, with different politicians. We'll do our bit, but we can't get caught up. We, we, we don't have enough resource to do what we're trying mm. to do, which is produce cool products. But that other stuff is going on, and we'll try our best. Fine. Um, you know, but it is happening. I see it. I've spent 17 years peddling around cities all over the world, and this transformation is happening and it has to happen if you imagine um theresa may um before her tenure came to a close said she has to put 20 billion into the nhs 20 billion some amazing amount of money for my dad's generation dad's 81 Mm -hmm. born in 39 um spent most of his childhood outside and of course what did he eat not many sweets or, or anything like that because it was rations now you're chucking 20 billion in for him and his generation well, in 20 years' time, forget 20 billion, 200 billion. It isn't going to be enough. Yeah. So it's no good keeping lobbing money in for the cure. You've got to get the prevention bit going. And since more of us live in cities now than ever before, there's been net migration mm. to cities. The place to focus your energies to have the biggest return on your buck for prevention is getting cities more active. Okay. You know, it's got to be, it's got to be the way to go. So in the situation when you are crowned... Mayor of London, what are the three steps? How do we how do we fix this? I'm simple. So so I think the first thing I do is I would say I'm not mayor of London. I don't have the power. So if I have my magic wand, mm. if I look at the world from a rational perspective, of course I'm very skewed to the cycling, but that's only because of my experience. I'd say, what on earth are we doing spending eighty billion 
on a railway that saves 20 minutes mm. between London and Birmingham. I go on that railway relatively regularly. Just give me Wi-Fi. I don't care 20 mm. minutes longer. I just sit there. I can't even do any work on the train for the however long it takes today because the Wi-Fi doesn't work. Take your 80 billion. I'll have 10 of it, please. 10 billion is what I'll have. And I'd sort out every city in the UK, not just London, every city and make them like Berlin, Hamburg, Amsterdam, Copenhagen. I'd have children then having the confidence to go on their scooters, to walk to school, to pedal to school in our main cities mm. in the UK. And I'd still put 70 billion in my back pocket. Maybe I'd give the NHS 20 just to keep it going. And then I'd still have 50 billion. But of course, it'd be more than 50 billion because it isn't going to cost 80 billion to build, to build this railway. It's going to cost 100 by the time yeah. they finished it. So something funny is going on. And to me, you know, you've got to go back to basics and design our spaces around people not business, not commerce, not strategic plans, people. Mm. And, and the bicycle is a humble little thing. Walking is a humble thing and it gets left off. We have a rail strategy, we have a road strategy. We don't have a walking strategy, we, have a, we don't have a cycling strategy and yet surely that's, for most of us, a right. It's like yeah. water, but we don't have it. Do any of the parties have a kind of platform about cycling, about moving? More? Yes, they are. They're getting there. And that's why we had this, um, we had this hustings. But Is it, are we in Boris Johnson's seat in Uxbridge, no? We're not um, in Uxbridge, are we? No, we're not in Uxbridge. No, we, we, well, we, were, we used to be in Middlesex and now we're, now we're Ealing. Right. I thought that um, might be a nice side note. That so this was, but, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's coming. But the, it's, to be honest, you could get caught up in the political thing of London, you could get caught up in the political thing of LA, you know, and that's why we can't get too caught up in it. Yeah. Because actually, what we need to do is produce awesome products. And that's what we've tried to do. And if you create an awesome product, there will be people who love it, enjoy it, and they create momentum in their own mm -hmm. right. And those people then have an impact and those people become annoyed. And, and that's a far more powerful thing than us jumping up and down. We've got 600,000 customers. If they jump up and down, they'll have a far bigger impact than us. Yeah. So, you know, our main focus is producing a bike and then looking after the customer for the life of the, of the product, which, you know, could be up to 20 years. So it's not just sell it and then sell the next one. It's sell it and nurture the customer. Yeah. So moving now from Amsterdam to the Amazon, where you have spent some time as well. Good you're research. A of, you're Good a bit research. of an adventurer, aren't you? Um, no. No. Um, <laughs> Well, Brompton's been an adventure. Yeah, I spent some time in the Amazon. Um, you nearly died in the Amazon. Is this yeah, true? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, twice. Okay, um, good. Well, twice is what's the expression? Once is carelessness. Twice is it really was all the other way around. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was pretty reckless. Um, so I, um, as I said, I got a, I got a scholarship to go travelling for a year. Got a one-way ticket to Argentina. Came out of Colombia about nine months later. But obviously, I been grown up on uh, David Attenborough mm -hmm. um, and I'm really pleased to say he's lasted long enough that my children have also been grown up on, on yeah. David Attenborough because um, he's a complete legend so of course for me the Amazon was you know six months of somebody sitting in a tent rotting all condensed into 30 seconds of stunning footage <laughs> so all I'd seen was the 30 seconds of the stunning footage so when I got to Peru I thought right I'm going into the jungle and I wasn't going to do a tour so I flew into Iquitos, which is a pretty incredible place. And then I found some unsuspecting guide and we trotted off to go proper deep jungle. And, did you have um, a goal or did you just say, take no, me No, I wanted somewhere. to go where 
you know, to experience it in its rawest, purest sense. So it was a ferry for two days, then it was a motorized little canoe, and then it was a couple of days walking, then it was paddling for four days, and then we got onto walking. But where were you hoping to end up? Just there was no the ending middle. up. There was just deep as possible, to the, right? Somewhere where deep. no one else has been. Well, just as sort of remote, proper experience. So okay. the plan was, I can't even remember how long I was planning to go for, but it was probably four weeks. Somewhere in the middle of that, we were hunting. Obviously, food, you can't carry that much food with you, so we were hunting, and, uh, and you tend to hunt at night. What animals do you hunt? Everything. And anyway, in the middle of that... When you say everything, are we talking... I mean, people eat snakes and things, don't they? Bush meat like that. Yeah, 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 we ate snakes and all that stuff. So Jesus. we were hunting at night... And I was with Mauro, and uh, anyway, cut a long story short, there was a snake, he chopped his head off, and I didn't think anything of it. We then ate it. It was There are three snakes that get you into trouble in the Amazon. The coral snake, the furred lance, and the bushmaster. The coral snake is pretty, you'd have to stamp on its head for it to bite you. The other two are a little bit aggressive. Uh, this was, I can't remember if it was a furred lance or a bushmaster, but anyway, it was one of the nasty ones. All fine, we ate it, no trouble, moved on. But it's just me and this guy, hours tromping through the jungle, my brain started trotting along and I started thinking, ooh, well, what would have happened if that had bitten him? My God, I'm, I mean, I've got no idea where we are. We are completely in the middle of no the jungle. GPS no GPS. No, there was none of that. No, no, we didn't have any of it. There was Jesus. no communication. We'd just gone. And, uh, he and turned who, who is this guy? You've just met him. Well, I went to a sort of tourist. I mean, okay. it's all pretty... But basic. Fine. So you there. hadn't said to anyone, here's where we're going. Oh, no, there was none of that. Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> so I did write a letter to my parents before I went in saying, I'm going into the Amazon. I'll speak yeah, to you in about a month. Mark. Anyway, cut a long story short, my brain started whizzing along. And the more I thought about it, if it bit him, well, he's going to die. And then if it bit me, he's going to leave you. You can't carry I'm going to die. And, and if it, well, if it bit him, I was going to die because I get lost. So basically, I came to the conclusion I'm going to die. And then, then I ha- and then I said, right, I don't want to carry on going. Uh, it's Turn time to get out. I want to get out. Get me out. Get me out. But of course, get me out isn't get me out of the it's jungle. Not a cord, no. It's like another two weeks to get out. So then, of course, once I decided I wanted to get out, I was even more convinced that I was going to cop it. So then I wrote a letter to my parents, you know, because I thought they were going to find me and there would be what, my diary. What, just to keep on your body? Yeah, yeah, I thought they were, you know, my goodbye letter to my parents and my diary and everything. And I mean, I'm going on and on about this, but... Well, no, this is fascinating. So, but what, the, another question I have is, what are you talking about for the seven hours a day when you're... You're not. He doesn't speak good English. No, he doesn't speak good English. My so Spanish you are just thinking. Thinking and you're way not seeing too much, much thinking. Because there's... You're down, in the, you're down in the, you know, pretty grubby bit. Anyway, the long and the short it was, I came out of there terrified. It was pretty flipping scary. But what Did you get happened, ill at all? Did anything bad happen or not? You, no, not really. I mean, lucky. you know, we were, we were fine, but it was mental. And, um, wow. but what did happen was, and I was 19 at the time, just in saying goodbye to my parents, philosophically, I thought about things that mattered to me, really mattered. And what was so bizarre was the thing that mattered to me were watching neighbours on the crappy old sofa at home, covered in dog hair, eating baked beans on toast with mum. Or... Dad and I, occasionally, if we were driving past a particular part just outside York, mm. there was a family that made their own ice cream, oh, and wow. we'd stop and get a tub of this stuff. And Dad <laughs> and I would cheekily just knock back the entire tub of ice cream. But it wasn't the trendy party or no. the trendy friends, which when you're 19, everything's you about trendy. It, yeah. But actually, it was the complete opposite. So that was fairly wow. a revelation for me when I was 19. So then when I went to university, I tried to reorganize it again, this time better organized. And um, I went to face my fears, 
led an expedition and if the first one went quite badly the second one went really badly and um, we nearly all starved to death I lost four and a half stone we were in there for longer um, it how was long filmed. were you there for? seven weeks and you're, well, you're 21 at this point 21 yeah and, and you're then, the expedition leader yeah and I made some crass I mean insanely crass mistakes I mean so bad but at the time I didn't realise it we ran out of fuel we ran out of bullets we ran at the level the water level was low which was unfortunate we got terrible trench foot it was pretty hardcore I mean that really was quite hardcore the first one was mentally this one was the whole bang shoot um, anyway luckily we got away with it um, just but it what, was a bit what, what do you enjoy what, what made you want to go back if you thought you were going to die what do you and it's just tramping through hot because the reason why is because the experience was so profound mm. the first time I want to know if that was just me or with other people have right. such a, a profound reflection on themselves. As it happened, the documentary was basically a bunch of toffs going into the jungle, getting into trouble. But Which is actually, I mean... Which is far more interesting know, for, the, for, the, for the ratings. But <laughs> funny enough, we're all still together, but it took me about three years to speak to some of the team because it was pretty brutal stuff. Then I did wow. a final expedition where we climbed a big mountain and luckily learnt some of the lessons from the pretty badly managed and badly organised expedition in the Amazon and we did rather a good job of that okay um, yeah so I mean and, and life is a big expedition I mean it's all a big adventure and you know there's nothing wrong with making mistakes because if you make mistakes hard enough and quick enough you get to see the mistake quite obviously if you don't go at it hard enough you might go along for 15 years just quietly Right. screwing up without realising whereas if you go slowly. at it pretty hard you go you that is totally not the right way to approach it and okay. it's mostly about communication um, recognising that most people around you are better than you mm. and, and letting go of control okay so what I mean this may be a simplification but what are there kind of actionable work lessons you've brought back completely from? probably the biggest is um, in most companies when somebody employs somebody, the company tells them what they want them to do, which seems sensible. But personally, I think, on reflection of the experience as I've been there, I think that's not right. So with us, if we recruit somebody, we recruit somebody because we have a need for knowledge and experience mm -hmm. that we probably don't have. That's why we need more of it. So we create a job description, and we go out and find this person. We spend ages trying to find them, and then we pay a ridiculous amount of money to a recruitment agent, and then they arrive. And they have the skill and knowledge that we need and we don't have. And then they come to us and say, right, I've arrived, I've got my feet under the table, what do you want me to do? And we look at them and say, what stupid question, I've got no idea. <laughs> That's why we employed you, you muppet. We can tell you where we're trying to get to, yeah. we're trying to get there. Now you tell us what you need to get us there, but please don't ask me what to do, because I've got no idea. And some of our staff find that a bit weird, because they expect to be told what to do. Yeah. And we do not do that. Our role, my role, anyone at any level in the organization's role, if they have a, a, any form of leadership or management, is to allow their team to fulfill their potential, to give them the skills, the support, the capital investment, clear the bureaucracy out of the way, and allow them to do what they've mm. been employed to do. Yeah. Um, and that's a slight different approach, which seems eminently sensible, but is a bit rare. Right. It's, it's something that strikes me when you talk about these things is, um, it's quite like a kind of human element to a bike company. And you seem to put a lot of premium on fun and happiness. Yes. Is this a fun and happy place to work? 
Well, if it isn't, the bike isn't going to be very fun and happy. Okay. I mean, if you start in business, some people think business is about shareholders. I passionately believe that isn't the case. Um, I believe it is about the customer. Pretty much first, second, third, fourth, fifth. The customer is everything. You simply will not have a happy customer if your staff don't care. I mean, if they're not interested, if they simply don't care, if they don't enjoy themselves, you can't have a good sort of product or um, service if the staff don't like it. You know if the staff like it. So the only way really you can have a happy customer is by having staff that care and that enjoy it and respect what they're doing. And then if you get a happy customer because you have happy staff, well, guess what? You have quite happy shareholders because that's a business that's going to succeed. And most businesses, it's sort of, oh, finger pointing, backstabbing, you know, getting on the ladder, crap. And they forget about the customer. And, you know, and that's everything. So, you know, if we don't get that bit right, forget it. Okay. We're, We're doomed. So how do you make sure that the staff are happy? Well, if you give people autonomy, if you trust people, if you let them make mistakes, if you uh, allow the company to be fun. I mean, I worked for DuPont. It was ICI, but it became DuPont. One of their things was horseplay will be frowned upon. Horseplay? Yeah. It was in their sort of how you should act as a member of staff. And horseplay is... Well, it's fun. just mucking around. Mucking around, yeah. Horseplay will be frowned upon. Really? We had to hold onto the handrail when we walked upstairs. We weren't mm. allowed to walk on the pebbled area. If we walked on the pebbled area and we got caught, we could be dismissed if we didn't walk up and hold the handrail. And at the same time, I was asking these guys to drum off 300-degree molten plastic in a shitty bin wearing some ridiculous spacesuit because the company wouldn't pay a million quid to put an automated system in. And I was meant to fire them if I saw them not holding onto a handrail walking up the well, stairs. Well, maybe if you've got molten chemicals, you shouldn't have much horseplay. To what? play devil's advocate for DuPont. No, disagree. <laughs> if we don't, if this bike isn't right, it could kill people. Yeah, so there's, uh, the stakes are high. The stakes are high. But, you know, having fun doesn't mean you don't take it seriously. Mm. You know, having fun is how you should live your life. You can be deadly serious, but still have fun. And that's what we do. Wow. And, you know, we have this thing where in business, and I fight it, where business gets too big. Um, everyone defers to the advisor. When you're little, you haven't got a fucking clue. You can't afford an advisor. So you wing it. You make it up. You do what feels right. But when you get bigger, oh no, you can afford the advisor now. Oh, let's get the advisor in. The advisor trots in at £400 an hour and tells you, you've got to do this, that and the other. And this has happened in our company. And Michelle went off to the advisor and she came back from the HR advisor and the advisor said this, that and the other. And the next thing you know, we couldn't touch anybody. No, no, you can't touch somebody. That might offend them. No jokes, no banter. Can't do this, can't do that. I said, now, Michelle, what is the name of the company? This is advisor. Yes, advisor. They are advising us. Mm. What we need to do as the people that run this company is decide which bits of advice we take and which bits of advice we don't take. Because ultimately, we are the ones that determine the success or failure of the business. We are the ones that will go to prison as a director if we do something wrong. So it's on our head be it. And we have taken a decision that the world isn't black or white so we're not going to have a company where no one can talk no one can have a banter no one can touch each other because what sort of world is that I'm not like that when I see my friends I give them a massive hug and I tell Ricard that he's getting bald Mm. you know and they tell me about my island (laughs) he is getting bald and all this stuff but 
it's harder to do that because yeah. it's grey. Because you have to train your staff that you have to respect individuals. You need to know that somebody from Spain would, would be, be offended if you didn't kiss them on both cheeks. Mm-hmm. But someone from the Middle East would be offended if you kiss them on both cheeks. So the world isn't black or white. Right. And so, but that's, what, that's the risk we want to take. Business is about risk. And it's not just about risk in the product. It's about risk with how you treat your staff, how you engage your staff. And in 17 years, we've had one situation where that policy, if you call it a policy, has sort of not worked. Well, if it's happened once in 17 years, I'd do it all over again because it means we feel like we can be ourselves at work. Mm. And it comes with risk, but that's what business is about. It's calculated risk. Yeah. So what's the interview process like? What are you looking for? What questions do you ask? So if I have an interview, I go straight to the one thing I'm interested in. The bit beforehand somebody else has done. I'm interested in interests. That's what I'm interested in. Who are what, you? What, a little bit of the CV that says yeah. other interests? Yeah. Who are you? God, that's a tough question though, isn't it? Because, no, because we have created an education system that encourages everyone to be the same. Mm. Oh, you have to get 10 A stars. You have to be in the rugby team. Oh, you have to be in this. You, but I'm not, I want to do philately. Oh, God, philately? Oh, my God. I want to play the what, harp. What is philately? Exactly. Philately. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Um, or I want to do play the harp. Oh, my God, that's for sissies. Or, you know, me, that's who I'm after. Okay. I'm after people who are different. Why? I'm in business. What does everyone talk about in business? Innovation. If you've spent your entire career, oh, I went to school, I get 10 A stars, oh, I did work experience with this company, PwC and whoever it was, and I got the perfect work experience, and I, did the, I played for this team that was the perfect team, not interested. One, you think you're better than you are, so you cost too much. Two, you're not prepared to be different. Right. In my business, I need people who are prepared to be different, who had a childhood and grew up being different and being sufficiently determined and interested in. I don't care what they're interested in, but I want to be passionate and interested in something that is just a bit different. Okay. And that makes me think they'll approach their job here a bit differently because innovation just isn't in the product. It's in sales, it's in finance. Every single part of our business, there's room for innovation. So what are your interests then? What does it say on your CV? You probably well, you've, you've CV. done the, you, I do, go on LinkedIn. <laughs> well, I went up the Amazon twice, okay. made complete balls ups. Then I went up a mountain in Argentina, 7,000 metres. But you can't do that every week. So what's your, what's your weekend hobbies or your week Gardening, night? particularly keen on my vegetable patch. I've okay. got chickens. I did, I, last year I did a, a um, tried to become an apiarist. Oh, pe- uh, bees, not well bees. Done. That's um, good. And, that's, and we, we like bees, don't we? We, we like bees. Them. And the trouble is I, I did my course. I bought my, my beehive, but I haven't got my bees yet. Okay. So you've got all the gear but no ideas. Oh my God, I'm so there. I'm so all the gear and no idea. (laughs) But this spring, um, and I am going to try my to to do some lecturing at university um, next year. I'm on a mission to try and do that. Um, I've been involved in setting up. Well, I've been involved in setting up one charity, which is an amazing charity called Inspiring the Future, which we now have 55,000 volunteers going into 10,000 schools. Look it up. It's awesome. And I've just stepped down from seven years on investors in people. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, and to be honest, when I was at school, uh, I don't know, maybe it's a legacy of me, but I had friends who were in the cool crowd, but I then had Constantine, who's a legend, and we set up the Cheese and Wine Society at school, which was pompous and ridiculous, but at least we drank wine and ate cheese, and we, you know, the school allowed us to do it. We thought mm. that was quite cool. Um, 
So for me, I think you need difference. And when I talk in schools, which I do a little bit, I make a real point because when we're taught to, and of course you're feeling a bit self-conscious when you're growing up and you're in your teens. So you want to sort of not stick out, but I want to encourage people to allow themselves to be a bit different. Okay, good. I'm worried I don't have enough interest now. Well, you're doing all right. You're, you're, you're sitting in front of me with a microphone. That's oh, this pretty is, rad. I don't find this interesting. This is a, a job for me. No, I'm joking, of course. Of course, it's a pleasure. I want to ask you now the quick-fire questions we yes. ask everyone yes. that are about interests and oh. hopefully are interesting. Oh, God. Um, so, Will, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? And by this, I mean being in charge so of So, I wanted to be a game warden in Africa, but then I've got these ideas where... But I've slightly put that to one side because I've got a bit older... I sometimes fear I'm not contributing enough to the problems that we have in the globe. Mm. Brompton helps. But I think I've got this idea that um, we should be taking um, boats with 40-foot containers. The 40-foot container, you can take off the side of the boat. You can plonk it into the sea, somewhere along the Red Sea. Um, it's actually a fully integrated desalination plant. Then you float photovoltaic cells on the top of the water. You mm -hmm. pump the water to a station this means that you can put this desalination plant where there are no roads and then you set up a fully robotic re-greening process so you have robots putting in the grasses you have a, a robots that laying out the, the water because we've got to basically green our planet we've got to absorb carbon mm -hmm. and all this technology exists what frustrates me desalination exists photovoltaic cells exist robots exist we're just not putting them together enough to get on with it and it frustrates me that it's, it's happening a bit slow. So, you know, and I've, you get inspired by what um, those documentaries from Bill Gates, yeah. you know, that it's all there. The engineering is there. We just need to apply it. Right. So, um, but I, I suspect, if I'm being honest to myself, what happens to people when they run businesses, their egos get big. They think they can do anything. And then they jump ship and realize, actually, there's a hell of a lot of luck in where they got to. And then it's just not right. that easy. So for the minute, I think I'm better to, quite happy. to get to have a bigger impact with what I've got. Yeah. You know what I took from those Bill Gates documentaries? Just the sheer amount he reads. You oh my God. I don't read enough. And that, that, that oh, was I'm, my I'm big definitely in that. I'm definitely in that camp. But the thing is, it's time. I mean, mm. mind you, he's always done He's very it. quick at he reading. Is, he's very, yeah. But, it, you know, it, it's research really. If I was interested in something, you know, I, I, it's not difficult. That's the amazing thing about the internet. You can start researching and finding out and discovering that they've even managed to, you know, Desalinate parts of parts of the coast that's been got salt in it, and oh, there's so many good, there's so much good stuff. But it, it somehow we're, we're spending three years talking about Brexit and sort of instead of solving some of these problems. Right, it's a bit frustrating. Colossal waste of time. Colossal waste of time. I couldn't <laughs> say it better myself. What's your worst habit? Well, I bite my nails. Okay, um, but actually, if you look at them at the moment, they're not looking too bad. They look fine. Yeah, they look fine. Okay, good. They're so not such me. a bad habit. Yeah. Uh, what's the most impressive thing you can cook? What I am extraordinarily impressive at my wife would concur is when we have nothing in the fridge, right? A bit of rancid this, half a bit of that. I will miraculously produce something okay. phenomenal. So I am not good with recipes, but the general sniff about, make a roux, you know, a bit of sauce, find wow, some bits and bobs. Yeah, Fine. I can do that. Okay, so I, I, it, it tends to be a bit random. Occasionally I fail, as my children will uh, attest, but um, I can normally knock something up. From so this is post-apocalyptic thinking as post -apocalyptic, well. Back to post-apocalyptic, yeah. You, you're yeah. a good man to know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, good. I'll be okay there. 
Um, what's been your biggest failure? Yes. Um, the funny thing is, and this is, I think, and, and this is trying not to be too egotistical, but um, if I look back on 45 years, it's just been one consistent failure. I've just rumbled from one sort of marginal fuck up to the next. But I don't regret any of it. I don't feel there's been some enormous failure. Because, you know, I remember losing my passport in Bolivia. And that was a total error. What an idiot. Then I had to go back. It took me three days to go back and find it. And I was in the middle of nowhere. And my wife, I failed so much that even when I fail now, I'm like, oh, oh, another little fuck up. Oh, dear. But I've done it so often. You know, I'm I'm sort of relaxed about it. And I don't get in too much of a flap. Mm. So there has never been touch wood anything that I would say is some tremendous regret. Because even things when things went wrong, you you get this benefit. Um, So, you know, I just bumble along and I'm continually... And if I'm not failing, I don't think we're trying hard enough. I really believe you've got to keep slightly making errors. And then you're, you're just... You're still advancing. Fine. Okay, good. So that's kind of a failure, but it's not. I suppose that's a failing upwards, as they say. It's a permanent failure. Permanent failure. Yeah. A but, state but, of but permanent But not failure. a sort of... I wouldn't change anything so far, yeah. because even the things that I did wrong, the Amazon was a colossal error, but, you know, I, I learned so much from it, so I luckily got away with it. So, you know, I'd do it again. Obviously, if I did it again, again, <laughs> I would do it slightly differently. Okay. I think there's one more trip in you, don't you? I'm not coming with you, I'm afraid. Well, the thing is, I've now got three children. That Uh, has changed things a lot. There was a time when, you know, doing things that might result in you dying was fine. And really, (laughs) it's not fine anymore. I don't think it's ever fine, but I admire the gung-ho spirit. Mm. If you could learn one new skill, what what would it be? Well, I haven't delivered my beekeeping. It really does annoy me. But the one I've wanted to do, I went on... These are not quick-fire answers, I'm sorry. No, no, that's good. I, I went on a train back in South America, that nine months had a big effect. I went on a train between um, Antofagasta and Potosi. Mm. So Antofagasta is in Chile, Potosi is in Bolivia. It was a 24 hour train journey. And we all rolled in on the wrong day and we thought it was going on a Tuesday. We turned up on Monday, didn't go till Thursday. Anyway, that's another story. (laughs) One of the guys I'm out on the platform, I'm now godfather to his eldest daughter. But there was a guy who turned up, a gringo who turned up on this train with a little leather box, like this big. We were on this train for hours. And this box, he opened it up and it had four harmonicas. Wow. From a a bass harmonica to a high harmonica. And the leather was really worn and lovely. And literally, we sung our heads off. He'd be pulling out, deep one, the high one. We were all singing, everyone's clapping, you know, all the the ladies with their sort of funny bowler hats and they were all getting involved. And this little box that came out of his rucksack just brought was rich and brought the whole carriage alive so I've always wished I could learn the harmonica and I've sort of had a couple of failed attempts really so, yeah I haven't succeeded can you get harmonica lessons yes you can yeah you can That's but the tricky brilliant. bit is you have to fiddle around with your tongue and do one you think you're going to be brilliant and do all this harmonious stuff and the first thing you have to learn to do is to play each tiny uh, hole yeah and I, oh I, yeah yeah God. failure another failure I don't think that's failure that's a great answer what a scene what songs were you singing that, that everyone knew from the, the no, tops no, of the No, no, no one knew. You know, they okay. we just sang and everyone they just, just gets involved. Of, they just pile in. And you just make your own kind of noise and stuff. Well, I don't know. I, it's so long ago. But it, we sang <laughs> and okay. he played. And that's enough. And that's enough. Brilliant. Is there a phrase that you would banish from the earth? No, but there's a phrase I would get people to say more often. Okay. Which I am known for. It's a, it's a BA quote, which is another day in paradise. When I come in in the morning, I'm going to say another day in paradise. 
And people think it's a joke. But what they don't realize is I mean it. Do you always feel, on a Monday morning, do you feel like that? Yeah, every morning. Wow. Because if you speak to people who are close to the end of their life, if you hear people, and it doesn't matter whether they have a tragedy of cancer and they're dying in the middle of when we think they should live, or whether it's somebody to the end, we are surrounded by incredible beauty, you know, just a leaf. Mm. You could sit and look at it for two hours and just get your head around it. And we're in such a bloody rush. We're whizzing along. I'm permanently telling my guys to chill out, calm down. They work too hard, they're stressed. We make bikes and we're here so short a time. So for me, that is really important. And it is a state of mind, you know, you have to just practice, having, don't you? You, you have just, to practice concentrating. You just have things. to know that um, time is short and we're living in paradise. We might go on to some other paradise. Who knows? Mm. But I'm not 100% sure about that. But at the minute, I'm in it. So I may as well suck it up and enjoy it. Yeah. Is that the near-death experience speaking? Do we all need Maybe. a near-death experience? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know whether it was that whether it was there before. But it's definitely there. Right. What have you done recently for the first time? Oh... That's a good question. I can't think what I've done recently for the, for the first time. Well, we went sailing in a boat as a family with some great, great friends. We hired a yacht. They call them yachts. I mean, they're like 40 foot. It looks like a floating caravan to me. It was pretty expensive to rent mm. it. It was pretty good fun, I have to say. But um, on one day, uh, I mean, I, I have not married a reflection of myself in my other half. So on, I don't know, it was day four, the wind really got up. It was gusting 35 knots. It was starting to get quite exciting. We had a skipper because we didn't know what we were doing. Our friends had a boat, children same age, and, and uh, Nick knew what he was doing. And it was proper sailing. And I mean, this thing was like tilted right over. Wow. They were quite big waves. And uh, my wife said to me, looking quite green, about, you know, 40 minutes in, thwack, more water. This is not a holiday. <laughs> so, what do the kids think? Do they like it? They loved it. Yeah, yeah they loved it. And we, we, it was quite, you know, having a shower in the morning involved jumping off the, at the end of the boat. That was good fun. And we are trying as a family, now that everyone's got a bit older, to do more cool stuff. Like canoeing. You know, we live near the Thames. And you just get a canoe and spend a day floating down the river. And it costs nothing. And you see stuff. Great. We're just time, time, time. We need more time. Okay, good. That's my next question. What, apart from time, would make the biggest difference to the quality of your life, if you could have one thing? Um, yeah, it, it really probably is time. I don't need a great deal, to be perfectly honest. Um, my touch wood, my family are pretty healthy, except for the dog, I had to take the dog to the vet. Um, for me personally, I, I'm so spoiled, I don't need anything else. Um, but in general society you know we've got some serious stuff we need to sort out but I, I'm, I'm so spoiled already I don't need any more I mean and the one I would have would be time yeah what's your most treasured possession my family or does that not count I don't think it counts okay that's fine that's fine and that makes it easier for you because if you hadn't said them and you said a yeah, watch yeah, yeah. Or something, so um, my most treasured possession do you have a very early prototype Brompton yes I do not my most treasured I'm, I'm not that I mean not that th into there is Bronsons. something <laughs> that no not that into stuff okay um, so I have something that I really like which is um, 
so effectively my like my grandmother there was a a very old lady in my life called we called her nan she was she wasn't a grandmother but she was like a grandmother and um she used to come and stay for like four weeks every summer she lived till about 92 and she was four foot two mm. you know tiny little person her name was bessie gertrude i mean in itself wow. flipping yeah. cool and um she had no possessions she's very little in life and um when she died we were all allowed to take something some little something and she's got this very um it's three little uh, monkeys it's glass sitting on a little it's about this big mm. and uh as hear no evil see no evil yeah. speak no evil and she had had that on some little shelf in her tiny tiny little home and i got that and I still have it and it keeps falling over and breaking because of course I've had children in the meantime and right. I've stuck it back together again and it recently a little bit more has chipped off but it sticks back quite nicely but I particularly like that yeah yeah. I mean I, but it's not at the end of the day precious photographs I mean the most important thing is having time with friends mm. and family really I mean the re- most of it you know it's pretty bad if it goes a friend of mine had his flat burnt down he lost all his pictures and it was terrible but at the end of the day we just move on and we're all going to be dust in a minute anyway yeah good I'm not going to end on that note what <laughs> book has influenced you the most I um I, again I'm afraid I'm so bad at having one thing that's influenced me yeah. I read The Conquest of the Incas when I was um, travelling around South America and um, it's an incredible story of tragedy um, and bravery I, I thought it was a pretty incredible book but I've discovered Audible I'm not very literate as you might discover being an engineer so mm. I wasn't really at top of the pops with having read Nicholas Nickleby which currently I'm reading funnily enough <laughs> okay. at the moment but all these things I just couldn't read anything um, when I went travelling I had so much time on buses for hours I started reading and loved it I mean Papillon is a great book oh love that book but generally I'm, I, I discovered Audible so I'm, I'm becoming a complete you know knowledge of books I keep it's almost cheating read isn't it I haven't no, started no I, I don't feel it's cheating at all life's too I short I keep it, get, suck it up Middle March War and Peace would I ever read War and Peace in my Gosh. life no chance brilliant book War Middle and Peace. March why would you go near that brilliant That's Middle huge. March fantastic oh no sorry now coming back to book yeah. the book I love the best is Cider with Rosie by Laurie Lee. Right, okay, yeah. Yes, I got there eventually. I took that book into the Amazon on the first trip and read the first page about 50 times. If you read that first page, even the first paragraph, he's lying down in the long grass in the summer. And you know you get that smell in mm. high summer and the long grass and the crickets are just... And you can just see the, the um, grass at the top of the grass and he's probably about five. That is nectar. Okay, and that, that made you feel safe? In the Amazon? It made me feel homesick, but it made me yeah, have imagine. a connection to home. Okay. Yeah, but that God, book so there we go. It's a great book. Yeah, let's go on that. Let's, let's go, go on, on that. that. And finally, do you have a personal motto? Well, we have a family motto, which has sort of become personal, and it is Hodier, uh, as opposed to the Spanish, which is Manana. So Hodier means today. So if ever I find myself being a bit sluggish, I give myself a kick up the arse and okay. say, oh, come on, get on with it. Because, you know, you uh, can't be arsed, I'll do it tomorrow. So I try, though, you know, you'll discover if you speak to any of my team, I am about as efficient as a chocolate fire guard. But I try to get stuff done, Okay, you know, even though not always most effectively. Hodier. Hodier. Is that Latin? Yeah. Hodier. Good. Will, thanks very much. It's been fun. My pleasure. 
Well, if you enjoyed this episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you may well like the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest quarterly dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, as you may have heard earlier, podcast listeners now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20, that's P-O-D-2-0, at www.thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. And if you really like this episode, why not rate us five stars on the iTunes store or, of course, wherever you happen to get your podcasts. I think that would be a lovely idea. Anyway, I'll leave you alone now. Bye-bye.